let me check with the legal department if I can actually say I recommend that. Um, I don't know for sure if I would say that I, that I recommend you do that. Um, I do it. I definitely, um, definitely have, have no, no problem doing that myself. Welcome to the DSD Hunting Podcast. I'm Brad Cochran with Dave Smith here. And today we are going to cover some frequently asked questions about turkey hunting. Awesome. It's, it's that time. It is. It's, it's goose season is over with, and this is what we have to look forward to. Turkey season is right around the corner. Okay. Well, um, let's just get right into it then. Um, the first question here I'm going to ask you, Dave, what's the biggest mistake you've made chasing a thunder chicken? <laughs> okay. Asked much, by Pluck a Duck. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, well, I've made lots of them. Um, and I would say um, the ones that, that I remember right off the bat are um, probably the ones that really bothered me lately is I've kind of overestimated how aggressive a tom will be um, trying to intercept them on their way back to the roost. And I've had a couple of times lately where they, um, I was in the right place, intercepted them. The tom came to work the decoy and I was, you know, prepared myself to, to watch him work the decoy for 10 or 15 minutes and wait for the perfect shot. And he kind of worked the decoy for a little bit and, and started to walk away, like just lost interest on one of those two. I was luck lucky and made a good shot um, on a bird that was walking, and on the other one, I I didn't get a shot at all. So, that that's something that I I knew better, um, and I I I think I've learned that lesson permanently now. But that's one that's got me. And then another one is just just not drawing my bow at the ro at the right time. And I've had a couple, um, I've had some heartbreakers. One that would would easily be a state record Merriam's bird that um, I was set up with no blind with no blind and I was hunting with Justin Kazmaier and he tapped me on the shoulder and told me to draw because he could see the bird and I couldn't and I don't know why I didn't draw my bow but I didn't and it cost me that bird he saw the top of my he saw the top of my of my um, of my bow moving and took off so what about you you have you made any mistakes chasing um, thunder I would chickens? Say, <laughs> I can't think of any one like mistake in particular that I've made that I would qualify as the biggest mistake. But a couple mistakes that I've made um, repeatedly that I can't seem to really break are um, underestimating a turkey's ability to see you. Mm -hmm. Even when you're not moving, I mean, I think yeah. it's it, like it's so important not just to have, you know, camo on, but to make sure that you can get some some brush or something in front of you so that you're not fully exposed to the bird. Because I mean, there's some great camo patterns out there, but they're still, you know, they're still flat. Yeah, you know, they're printed on flat clothing, and and um, you know, the forest is is layered yeah you know and and so i think it's really important to try to get some brush or some grass or something something between you and the bird so that you don't stick out because it's really hard even when you can um sit still which i certainly can't do um you know to keep a bird from from spotting you when you're in the wide open yeah especially if they're not focused on the on the yeah. decoy so, so okay so that so, uh, sounds good now here's the next one is for you, Brad. What decoy sets do you feel are best and you feel are far from the norm? Oh, man. Far from the norm. That's kind of a tricky one. But as far as what decoy sets do I feel are best, I'm a huge proponent of using um, a single gobbler and at least one hen. And I I like to use one gobbler and one gobbler only to give the bird a focal point bird mm -hmm. or birds a focal point and and that's important to me because nine times out of ten when a gobbler or gobblers approach your your decoy spread um they're gonna go to that gobbler decoy so i always try to make that uh my my focal point i try to put that decoy 
in the exact spot where I want to take the shot on the bird. And then I kind of build my hens around it. Mm-hmm. And as far as how many hens I use, it really kind of does depend on a number of different factors, you know, like how far am I, am I going? Is this going to be a setup that I'm sitting over all morning, you know? So I, um, take into consideration, you know, th- those sorts of things. Uh, if I'm going to generally the, the shorter distance I'm going to walk to get to my, um, my, my setup, the more decoys I would use mm-hmm. and the earlier in the season, the more decoys I would tend to use. And also, um, whether, you know, how taking into consideration how open the terrain is, is, is another thing because, you know, if I'm in timber, just a single hen is, is, is plenty, you know, a hen and a, a hen and a gobbler is, is plenty to use. But if I'm hunting a field edge or even out in the middle of a field, like out of a ground blind, I might put out, you know, five, six, even even more decoys. So mm-hmm. yeah, we've done just about double that at times. At yeah. Times before. So what about <clears throat> what's far from the norm? What's a what's a blue sky decoy setup? Um, something for someone to try, or something that's far from the norm. Man, um, you know, I, I always like to get motion in my decoys whenever that's possible. And most of the states where I hunt, um, electronically powered decoys are illegal. So I have to use a jerk string, in which case, you know, I like to use our mating motion jake, or I'll hook up a, um, I'll hook up a decoy cord or a pair of decoy cords actually to our strutter decoy. You know, you've got the studs that come off of the sides of the decoy Mm -hmm. and, and those make for great fastening points for a pull cord. So when you do that, do you do the, the, the Casey Brooks method of two t- two strings or a continuous loop? Yep, yeah. two strings, yep. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. One string running off of each anchor point being the, the stud. Okay. You know, the, the, the stud is the fastening point for the wing. And even with the wing in place, you can, you can place a loop yeah. over the top of it and then run the the washer and then tighten the wing nut down over the top of it yeah yeah that's Um, a good good, works works great it does work great because you can it can be as fast or as slow as you want and if it's super windy you can use it to control control the bird from from moving too much yeah system it's a pain but it's it's worth it so um (coughs) far from the norm yeah the the motion i think is important and then i think just trying to make your your spread look as natural as possible, you know, face your decoys in random directions, different, different directions. I like, you know, the, the, the bigger my spread gets, the more feeding hens I tend to use. I'm a huge, huge fan of, of feeding hens. Um, I think it just looks really natural and it gives the approaching birds a, a very contented, relaxed impression of your, of your setup. So I'm going to add for far from the norm, almost the opposite of that. And this is just sort of just a blue sky theory, but just in case that's what, uh, Sean, Sean C13 is asking. And that is how about three leading hens and one upright hen and one Jake strutter, um, all pretty much single file with the Jake strutter in the rear. How does that sound? Yeah, that's. That's far from the norm, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) So I have another one for you, Dave. Okay. Hunter Keith Tompkins writes, I use a Dave Smith strutter with my decoy setup. When is a good time to use a hand decoy? To use a hand decoy, I would say, is any time is a good time to use a hand decoy. Um, I mean, if you want to be really, really natural, it's more likely that uh, hens would be in and around gobblers earlier in the season. But the, but the thing is, is later in the season, if there is a hen to, to be had, or it's available, um, that's exciting too for, for a, a real gobbler. So that makes it any time. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? Yep, definitely. Okay. All right. So Brad, for you, um, do turkeys use the same areas year to year? And that was Ethan Hafer or Hofer that asked that question. Um, 
My reply to that question is turkeys tend to use the same general areas from year to year. Um, my personal experience has been that it, they might use the same property one year and then wind up on, you know, the next door neighbor's farm the next year, but they generally don't go too terribly far. I mean, some years or, or some, some flocks do tend to use the same properties year after year after year. I see that especially, um, in areas that are, um, more populated with people where there are smaller properties and, I think turkeys tend to be drawn into um, people feeding them, and and when that occurs, you know, I think they they they're more likely to stick around year after year. Um, when I've hunted large large pieces of of public ground, by contrast, uh, the areas that they use from year to year tend to be more general. I'd say that you'll still find them in the same drainages, for example, from year to year, but you just might find them, you know, maybe a mile or two, um, you know, one year from where they were the year before. But but they don't, in my 25 years of experience, go typically all that far mm-hmm. from year to year. Right on. Um, okay, so uh, next question from Fins and Feathers, Brad, is he's asking about turkey banding projects. What do you know about that? Hmm. Um, well, I do know that they do ban turkeys. Um, I really am not aware of any specific banding projects. And to be honest with you, would I <laughs> be honest, would I share that information if I did? <laughs> I'm not so sure. I'm not sure that I would, but, but in all honesty, I don't know of any projects, uh, specifically don't have any in mind, but, uh, but I do, I do know that there, there are some banding projects out there. Yep. Right on. Okay. Dave Blake four, 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 five asks, what's your thoughts on setting up like eight decoys? Um, I think at times it could be great, deadly, um, groundbreaking. Um, it's great for visibility. Um, I used to believe, I've done it myself several times, I used to believe that you always had to have just one gobbler, and I kind of still think that that's important to only have one gobbler in that group. However, um, Matt Winters and some other people have done it with three strutters, and I still had big toms come in, which kind of amazes me, but, you know, I just does add some some realism it doesn't look like a decoy spread and it gets a lot of attention and 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 it has a lot of visibility so i like it i'm all for it it's 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 like you know using seven seven goose decoys in an area where everybody uses five dozen or whatever it's just it just doesn't look like a decoy spread um as long as it's not intimidating then i think it then i think it's a good thing what about you brad what do you think of that yeah i agree I definitely agree. Show them something different. And um, again, like it's going back to what I said earlier. Um, I can't remember what the exact question was um, that, that we were discussing previously, but I know that we talked about using larger numbers of decoys. Oh, yeah. Um, being doing something that's far from the norm. Um, I think I think using larger numbers of decoys is somewhat situational in that typically I would run more decoys earlier in the season and in open settings like a field, you know, Mm -hmm. somewhere, somewhere with a lot of visibility. Mm -hmm. Okay. So next question from Dalton Olson is what is the best way to scout turkeys in heavy timber? Okay. Um, Well, the biggest disadvantage you have in heavy timber is the lack of visibility. So then, um, my advice is, uh, you know, if you can't see the turkeys, then then you want to try to listen for them. Um, so the first thing I would do is I would try to get there first thing in the morning while they're still on the roost. That's when they tend to be the most vocal. Listen for gobbling. Um, try to get a, 
uh, an idea of roughly where they're they're roosting and then back out of there and come back later in the day after the birds have moved on which is typically what they do um they'll you know typically turkeys will fly down and they will mill around for an hour or two right around the roost and then they will move on so um something this is something that's going to take you you know probably um could take you several days to to um really locate birds in heavy timber but first you want to identify by sound where they're gobbling and then come back later uh, you know mid mid morning midday and um, start looking for sign you know try to determine exactly what trees they're roosting in and see if you can pattern them you know at that point are they roosting in the same trees you know day after day and if they are you know, setting up on them off of the roost is certainly an option for you. And if nothing else, um, you know, look, looking for sign is super helpful too, uh, because you can you can determine, you know, where they go from from the roost and and knowing, you know, where they go, point A to to, to point B, um, you can you can try to intercept them in between. Mm-hmm. Jacob Kennedy asks, what's the best way to lure in a lone tom with gangs of jakes in the area running them off? Oh, boy, I wish I knew. I mean, that's a that's a really tough, tough situation. And I've I've had some heart, heartbreaking situations where the tom just tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to get to get in. Um, and the jakes just absolutely would not let him. And it's really frustrating. Um, I. The only time I guess I've ever successfully done it, um, hunting with Justin Kazmaier, and he did, he did a, like a strutter sneak, um, and I couldn't believe that it worked, but it did work. The 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 birds were several hundred yards away across the field, and he kind of started working towards them just a little bit with behind the strutter with a shotgun, and for oh, some, so so he reaped it. Yeah, yeah, reap, yeah, reaping. Um, and I've never done it myself. It's the only time I've ever seen it done. And that lone tom, the, or the tom, separated himself from all the jakes. The jakes stayed out there. And there were hens out there, too, um, that the jakes were keeping the tom from. And the tom, I guess, saw his opportunity. Or, or I don't know what, but he came He came all the way in, charged all the way in, and and Justin shot him, shot him in the face. The only other thing I could think of would be, you know, if you can get the Jakes to come into your decoys without the Tom and then scare the living shit out of them, like shoot over their heads or whatever. I mean, maybe that would, maybe that would work and keep them from coming into your, to your decoy spread or your setup the next time. But I, I don't necessarily recommend that either. So my answer is, is I don't really know of any great, great way. Do you, how about you? Do you have any? Well, I don't. That is like, you're talking about, in my opinion, my experience, the toughest scenario that you could find yourself in turkey hunting right there. You know, a, a long beard that's intimidated by Jake's is, is a hard bird to kill for sure. But, you know, also, <laughs> there's really no, there's no wrong answer. There's no bad answer, I guess, because... Um, what have, what have you got to lose? You know. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. So, okay, uh, next one for you, Brad is. Um, what do you do if a bird gobbles where you're at at the moment and catches you by surprise? Ah, oh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, it's funny. Aaron was just telling us how he goes around um, locating birds with his uh, diaphragm call, and. And I purposefully don't use a turkey call to locate birds for this very reason, because I, 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 <laughs> I have nightmares about getting caught with yeah. my pants down, you know, for, um, for one, um, but there's, there's two things that I advise to, um, minimize the level of vulnerability that you find yourself in, in this particular scenario one is like i said don't use a hen call 
use a locator call like I prefer a goose call. Some guys like a crow call or coyote howler or well, whatever your favorite call is. Use something that's not not a hen call would be number one. And then um, secondly, bef- before you even actually, I've, I've got this reverse. This should actually be first before you even call to locate um, look around, be, be really aware of your surroundings and try to visualize where you would set up if you did get a gobble, mm-hmm. you know, that'll certainly help. And, and if you're in an area where you're, you're too exposed, you know, maybe work over toward a tree line or, you know, somewhere where there's some cover before you do call. Mm-hmm. That's a great, that's a great, great advice. Okay. Dave, then, um, I've got a, Another spread question for you from Brett Turner for he asks uh, best spread as in how many to run in placement and what to run. Okay. Um, I think it's important for everybody to have at least 20 decoys. I was thinking 40. Yeah. 30, 30 is better. 40. So you really need at least a dozen out of, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. That's, that's not funny. I'm the guy selling decoys, right? Um, so, you know, our, I'd say our tricky flock is, is really, um, it's, we put it together for the very purpose of having like the, the ultimate perfect turkey flock. It's certainly not necessary. And there's, there's times when that may be too many decoys. Um, and there, there could be times when that's not enough, but that's a great place to start. Um, if, you know, if you have the budget for it and everything like that. So my favorite is I just bring a turkey flock. Um, if I'm going on a road trip, I'll usually bring a turkey flock plus a strutter and then a couple more feeders, um, or, or possibly leading hens. And then, (coughs) excuse me. Um, and if, if you don't have the space, you know, or the budget for, for that, then it would just be, uh, a, a Jake and a Jake and submissive hen, a breeding pair. What about you, Brad? Yeah, um, I kind of look at uh, my turkey decoys as kind of like a, you know, a, a toolbox. You know, they all they all serve a different purpose, and and um, there's there's different applications for each decoy, and and um, so I like to have them all at my disposal because you never know, um, you know, which ones you're you're gonna want want to use or and and there's times when you know maybe i didn't bring a strutter and i wish that i had so mm-hmm. whenever possible i i definitely try to bring um a flock and a strutter and you know like you said maybe a few extra feeding hens but um i kind of i've kind of hinted at this earlier in the in the podcast that i always want to have at least a a gobbler decoy in a hen right on okay so um how about this brad um when do you find the white face tom or jake is the most effective and why boy that's that's actually a pretty tough question <laughs> um uh, to be honest with you i i've used it i use the white face now for the last two seasons and and um i used it from last season from the beginning of the season all the way through the very last day of the season and i found it to be equally effective you know from the beginning to the end and everywhere in between i couldn't tell you that there was a time of of the season uh, when i found it to be more effective or a particular bird that i found it to be more effective it was just all around it was extremely effective um and as far as why that is, I think, um, you know, I mean, turkeys, turkeys communicate, um, non-verbally, uh, just as much as they do verbally. And in fact, probably more so. And it's anybody's guess as to exactly what a white head means exactly. We all have our theories, but, um, whatever, whatever they're saying seems to be working because uh or it seems to be working in the hunter's favor because i tell you i i've used the red-headed decoys for many many years and 
Um, I'd have to say that arguably two of my best seasons have been the last two, and I use almost exclusively the white face. Mm-hmm. Right on. Okay, so I have a question for you, Dave, here from um, Kyle Steffens. Are you coming out with a new Hendy quite later in the year? <laughs> um, yeah, that's funny that he said Hen. Uh, that's almost clairvoyant there. Um, uh, no, not not later in this year. But it is funny that you would say that, Kyle, because um, I did <clears throat> do a sculpture of a new hen, and it's it's one hundred percent done. And the reason why I say um, I'm not one hundred percent sure when it'll come out is because this is quite a bit different, um, quite a bit of different decoy than what we've come out with in the past. And it's, it's sort of addressing some other needs of hunters. Um, and you know, hunters, especially that, that need a, a lightweight decoy that's really portable. Um, and so that's what we're working on. And that takes a long time to develop, to do it, you know, in DSD style and try to really, really do it right. But, but yes, we are coming out with some new Turkey products. So next question then for you, Brad is, um, what are, what are your early season decoy setups? Um, gosh, again, it's, it's kind of hard to really look at, uh, my decoy setups in terms of early season, mid season, late season. I just, um, you know, getting back to what I said before, I always like to, to run a gobbler and a hen at a minimum. I, w- I would say actually really the, the, true minimum would be a single hen decoy if I'm like running and gunning in Eastern Oregon and covering miles, but, and, and hunting by myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sure that I always want to have at least a hen and a gobbler and which gobbler I use <laughs> is very situational, you know, and, and, um, again, it depends on, um, you know, the, the particular setting. If I'm in an area with a lot of gobblers, boy, I'm almost always going to use a strutter decoy. If I've hunted this particular flock before and I had them come into a strutter decoy and I want to show them something different, I'll use a Jake decoy. If I'm in heavy timber and visibility is not a, a, an issue, then yeah, I might use a, a, a Jake decoy. It's a little easier to set up quicker, quieter, etc., etc. Um, and you know, obviously visibility is not a factor if, you know, you can only see 30 yards, um, versus a strutter, which you could see it from clear across the field. Um, really the biggest difference I would say in terms of early season decoy setups would be the number of decoys tends to be greater for me earlier in the season. You know, Mm -hmm. you see birds are still breaking up out of their large winter flocks and they tend to be more concentrated early in the season. And so it just looks more natural to Mm -hmm. use more decoys. And that's why I would use more decoys earlier in the season, but make no mistake about it. I mean, it's not uncommon for me to go out with our Turkey flock, for example, and hunt the last day of the season. Yep. You know? So, um, in fact, my brother killed a stud of a long beard on the last day of the season literally half an hour before fly up and we had uh he he came following four or five live hens and we had the whole flock out and as soon as he came in and saw that jake he ditched his hens and walked right past our three hen decoys and went to whooping up on the jake decoy you know just like it was opening day Mm -hmm. so um yeah, anything is possible, and I would just say the general the general trend is more decoys early in the season, but um, certainly not the not the rule. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dave, I have a question from Wacken and Stacking Outdoors for you. What do you do if you have birds fired up, then all of a sudden they shut up? Uh, well, that's a tough one, um, and that's frustrating. And I, I mean, I would say the, the best thing that I can think of to do or have had some success with is just go pretty dang quiet. And, you know, like you said earlier on one of these, what do you have to lose? Um, you know, I do, I think that there's a lot to be said for, 
um, being kind of aloof and elusive. And if you're if you're making hen sounds and they're fired up, and then all of a sudden you go quiet. I mean, I kind of feel like as long as you're making sounds, they at least know where you're at, and you're you're sort of you know tucked away and taken care of. If, even if they have other hens or whatever, um, they at least know where you're at, and that that you know as long as you're constantly calling. And so if you quit calling, um, I kind of believe that there's a good chance that that will you know elicit some kind of response where they all of a sudden have a sense of urgency, uh, maybe trying to come and locate you and round you up or something like that. What about you on that one? Yeah, I I completely agree. I completely agree. Okay, so Brad, uh, what's your favorite decoy combo? Boy, a lot of decoy questions. You know, you would think that we're decoy makers or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, so how do we get how do we get on decoys? Yeah, so much. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, like I've said over and over again, I don't, um, you know, I certainly don't restrict myself to using just one, one, one setup and one setup only. But if I had to say, if I had to choose what my favorite combination of decoys would be let's just say my favorite two decoys uh that would be a leading hen with a strutter decoy right behind her uh, i would i would position the the leading hen one direction and i would i would give the strutter six to ten feet behind her like he's pursuing her from the rear and the reason i like those decoys is the visibility um i mean you can see the strutter from a mile away there's no doubt what it is it's unmistakable the the hen decoy she's um she's in just a really super supernatural upright you know walking posture and that gives her great visibility versus you know maybe a shorter decoy like a um like a mating hen decoy uh, or, or even a feeder, feeding hen decoy. Um, so yeah, th- those two decoys are my favorite. Leading hen and strutter. If I was to add a third decoy, it would definitely be a feeding hen. Mm-hmm. And okay. if I was to add another decoy beyond that, it would probably be another feeding hen. I mean, I love feeding yeah. hens. Yeah, right. I, I love the confidence that the look of uh, feeding hens give give to a decoy setup. So yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Okay, next question I have is for you, Dave. Um, C Tabor three F asks, what's your favorite Turkey decoy and setup? <laughs> more, more <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, and, and then, and in that case, as far as my favorite, um, it would be exactly what you just said. I mean, a, a, our strutter or full size strutter is, is my favorite decoy to hunt over. And <clears throat> I, I'd say my favorite setup would be, um, hunting at a field edge and having, um, having him look like he's, he's followed, um, a hen, um, that has walked from the woods out into the field and he's following her. So that, that's my favorite. If I can, uh, if I can, you know, pull that off, that's probably my favorite, favorite setup. And the hen, a leading hen is really good, or it could be an upright hen, um, both really good, but that's, that would be my favorite setup. So very similar to, to, to what yours is too. So the next question then um, for you, Brad, is um, what are some of the ways that you give a strutter motion? Okay. Um, well, here in Oregon, motorized decoys are illegal. So the way that I personally um, get motion out of my strutter decoy is to run two lines uh, of cord. I like I like a... Um, a cord that that doesn't tangle you know so uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of decoy lines out there you know specifically designed for waterfowl decoys that you can use that are like pvc pvc line um that don't tangle and um you can you can wrap them on a spool i actually use two separate independent spools of line i run about 30 feet of line on each on each spool and the strutter decoy is nice because you can you can anchor the line over the stud 
the wing studs that come out the sides of the decoy right bef right below the secondary wing patch you know there's the there's the slot that the wing joint goes up inside and then there's the stud that comes out right below that that mm -hmm. point and um you know i like to use the wings because it just completes the the decoy um and i just run the loop of line right over the top once okay. i have the wing in place i run the um the cord a loop right over the the stud and then i place the washer over the top of the cord and tighten the wing nut down and it's good to go and what uh, what is the line again like how what what's it made out of and about how how thick is it and all that stuff it's pvc it's pretty it's pretty heavy duty um it's i think i think tangle free might actually make it okay to tell you the truth i'm i don't remember exactly what brand it is but i i do know that it's it's made for um you know floating duck and goose decoys mm -hmm. and it's designed you know not to tangle not to not to get bunched up sure that you know that's a great idea like i've never thought of that all i've ever used is like power pro but um that sounds like a great idea because power pro is notorious for getting tangled up like crazy so i'll, I'll have to try that myself yeah so um there, there's that option and then if you are in a state where motorized decoys are legal um, another really great option is um, there's a product called the Strutton 360, um, and you should check them out. The product is really cool. Um, basically, it, it hooks up to the stake on the decoy and allows you to, uh, by remote control, turn the decoy um, right or left, and I think there's a... Um, 360 degree that sure makes makes sense that it would be called the Stratton 360 and you, you can turn it literally 360 degrees and you can control the speed as well nice so so yeah it's a really it's a really cool product I unfortunately you know have not um, had the opportunity to hunt with it because all the states I, I <laughs> don't allow motorized decoys so um, but but check them out if if, if you're in a state where you can use them. You know, I saw a video of a guy who put a strutter on top of a remote-controlled, like, Jeep, you know, a radio-controlled yeah. car. And, I mean, it was so spooky. I, I was watching that thing, and it was going over slightly uneven terrain, and he was turning it and everything, and it looked so real. Really? I could not believe how real that looked. And I was thinking to myself, you know, if, I, if we lived in a state where um, we were, you know, where that was allowed, I'd be pretty tempted to try that. So I have a, uh, another question for you on my list. So I'm hitting you twice in a row here. Um, and that is, um, I'd like to hear about DIY. That's do-it-yourself freelance turkey hunting. Um, perhaps discuss the different states, maybe even talk about the DIY Grand Slam on public ground. That's a good question for you, Brad. Okay. Well, unfortunately, I can only... Um, I can only give a partial answer because I've never hunted Easterns or Osceolas on, on public ground. I've, I've hunted them on private ground before, but, but not public. So the extent of my public ground hunting um, is for Rios and Merriams, but I do have quite a bit of experience going after both of them. So, um, so I'll cover them. Um, yeah, they're the... The western states here, um, off the top of my head, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, um, Colorado, uh, I think I mentioned Montana, South Dakota, um, even portions of Nebraska. I know northwest Nebraska has some pretty good Merriam hunting. Um, there, there's all kinds of opportunities to uh, pursue birds on on public areas and 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 there's actually some really really phenomenal hunting to be had there in some places um, i do a lot of hunting in eastern oregon uh, mainly because it's so close to home i live on the west side of the state but every spring i take i try to take a week and and travel over there though some years i just don't have the time but still try to make at least a couple weekends where i go over there and um 
and it's it's a lot of fun. We have both Rios and Merriams in in Eastern Oregon, and um, the 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 biggest difference I would say in in DIY or DIY freelance turkey hunting versus what I think a lot of our audience is is going to be accustomed to is bird densities are are a lot um, are a lot smaller in in areas uh, in in public areas where I've been meaning that you're going to have to cover a lot more ground to find birds um, I've learned that birds tend to be less vocal on public ground and so I try to take advantage of the um, the the most active times of the day to be out listening for birds mainly on the roost which means you got to get up early um in that hour or two after they've flown down you know for for locating birds um you know audibly but then um i don't give up there it used to be that i would i would rely on just going around and locating birds that i could get to gobble um and i started to learn that I can get just as much done going around and looking for looking for sign, and that's when I really started getting good at at hunting public public birds because you have to cover so much ground, and and believe it or not, you can you can cover a ton of ground. Well, obviously a lot more ground, um, you know, in a in a vehicle than you ever can on foot. Which isn't to say that I discourage people from from hiking because it's certainly a great way to do it as well but um turkeys will use roads as corridors all the time logging roads um i pull over frequently and and i look for poop and tracks and Mm -hmm. and i look for places specifically where um where the the ground is soft enough to where a track would leave an impression and um so um yeah finding Finding sign is is uh, is something that you can do all day long, and uh, you know you only get a really really tiny window to where birds on on these public areas will call. Um, it was it was the same in the Black Hills of South Dakota when I hunted there. It's very very similar to Eastern Oregon, um, in that the birds were extremely vocal first thing in the morning and then they just shut up the whole rest of the day and some nights they wouldn't gobble on the roost at all other nights they would they'd give you a few gobbles but um they were they were far less consistent in the evening than they were first thing in the morning but um yeah my so my advice would be you know do some research um you know talk to talk to people who have who have um gone where you're going if possible and uh you know be ready to cover a lot of ground and um they're god they're they're just a ton of fun it's just very rewarding to kill a bird on public ground um there's a sense of satisfaction you know i i don't um i don't seem to care as much it it, it it feels like I don't seem to care as much about, you know, the bird's beard and spurs and how heavy he is when when I'm over, you know, chasing birds on public ground. It's just the it's just a sense of accomplishment, you know, that you kill a killing a mature tom on on public ground, especially when you're in an area where there's other hunters, it's just a really cool feeling. Right on. Well and then sometimes that's the advantage of it too, is that you don't have to deal with very many other hunters. You don't have to deal with you know, the sounds of the city and all that stuff. Yeah. And and then one other piece of advice I would give is that, um, in these areas, these public areas, uh, where, where you typically find birds, at least in these Western States, these big areas, um, my experience has been that the birds will move a lot. They move a lot more than in agricultural areas. Throughout the day. Throughout, throughout the day. Uh Their, their, their home range, if you will, is going to be, is going to be large by comparison. Um, birds in, birds on, on public, you know, public national forest ground tend to travel miles during the, during the day and won't necessarily roost in the same, you know, along the same ridge or in the same tree night after night. They have a tendency to go, I would say, um, in cycles where they'll roost maybe on one ridge 
And then the, the next day or the next evening, they'll roost either further down that ridge or the next ridge over. But it's not real common, certainly not as common for public land birds to roost consistently in the same, in the same spot, night mm-hmm. after night. So be ready for birds that are going to be covering a lot of ground, and you're going to have to cover a lot of ground too. Right on. Okay, so that was really uh, long-winded. I apologize, but uh, I have a question for you, Dave. This one's from the real Justin Kazmaier. Hmm, who's that? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What are your favorite turkey hunting stories? Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of one where I could include the real Justin Kazmaier um, and maybe make him look... (laughs) foolish no i'm just kidding i wouldn't do that actually come to think of it um now that you mention it um so justin kazmaier is um probably my primary turkey hunting partner and lives close to me and um, we have a lot of fun together um there was one bird in particular that justin was uh, freaked out over and just gaga over and but he had filled all three of his tags so so, so guess who, guess who got the opportunity at it? Um, and <clears throat> the setup was, was really a long shot because it was, you know, middle of the day, like sort of early afternoon. And we kind of, we roughly knew where he was. He was with two other toms that were gigantic, but he, um, he still just dwarfed them. He was so much larger. And, um, our only hope was because he'd go on and off you know, different properties, some that we could hunt and some that we, that we could, uh, some that we could, some that we couldn't. Um, our only hope was to, to move in on him in the, in the early afternoon, which was a tough, you know, a tough situation, but we made use of cover and we, we set up, um, we set up our decoys on, um, close to, um, a corridor where we thought that they'd be coming through and like we just got the decoy set up and it wasn't you know 10 minutes later they they came around the corner <coughs> and um one of the best things uh that happened on that day was that justin was losing his mind and he was freaking out like crazy and everything and um and you know i normally i get buck fever pretty bad with with just about everything and you know, it's when someone else is freaking out, that kind of calms me down because then I really, well, I'm having to, I'm having to like calm them down a little bit. So for some reason I was able to just be calm as could be. And they came around the corner and, um, they were, they were following a couple hens and the hens didn't, didn't pay any attention to our decoys. I had a, I had a, um, I had a Jake out and at least one hen, I can't remember how many hens, but you know, you always hope that in that situation that one of the hens will see that will see your hen decoys and come over and want to, you know, interact with the hen and see who the, see who this hen is. Well, they didn't. And that was kind of this, that kind of was kind of depressing um, because I just thought that they'd probably just keep following, but you know, that instinct kicks in and he stops and he looks at the hens walking away and he looks at the Jake and he looks at the hens and finally He's just like, ah, that's it. That here they come. They came in and started working my decoys, and they were really, really close. And I was using a, a Magnus bullhead, and um, finally I got an opportunity where he was holding his head still, and I shot, and I shot, made a good clean shot, shot his head right off, and that was a gigantic bird. Like it just his body was massive, and he was really pretty, and he had four really nice beards. And he had inch and a half spurs and that, you know, that was just a really good day. It was just, it was just really fun. And so, oh man. So isn't that the bird that held the Oregon state archery record for like a couple days and then some other guy (laughs) submitted a bird? Yeah, it was, well, I, I decided to go ahead and enter that and then it'd be a TF records and, and it was it was the it was the largest bird um, entered in in Oregon, gun orbo. So it was oh, quite wow. it was non typical. Yeah, it was quite a bit larger than than the largest archery. And that's yeah. overall score. That was overall so, which score. is weight, beard, and spur. Yep, combined. Yeah, exactly. Combined score. Yeah, okay. And so I mean, we have some record we have some records that are kept in Oregon where they go by the weight of the bird. 
and I have zero interest in ever competing in that right. or anything yeah. like that because that's just that's just a joke because as you know as well as I do that there's a lot of you know corn fed birds that, that really literally can't even fly yeah and they're just complete um, pets and those are what get entered what get entered in that but anyways um, yeah so this one <laughs> I was really, I was really excited. You know, I got this bird and it just crushed our, you know, our state record and everything. And then a guy sent me a message saying like, Hey, I shot a bird shortly after that. And I'm, I'm going to enter it. He shot it with a shotgun. Um, and it did, it did score higher than, than mine. And eh, that's okay. And for, for a while, I don't know where it sits right now. For a while it was, a, it was the third largest archery Rio in all of NWTF records. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I don't know where it stands now. I think I heard a rumor that, that a guy shot a bird in Oregon last year that had like seven beards and, and you know, decent decent spurs and everything like that. Where are all these multi-bearded birds out here? Because, you know, I, I hear about them and I have never killed a bird with more than one beard. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... They are definitely in pockets. Um, that's that's for sure. I think some of the genetics gets passed passed around because I know of several that have came from the same area. But you know, but then you know, I've gone to Kansas and shot a bird and it had three beards and and stuff like that. So sometimes it's just a matter of luck, lucking onto one and stuff like that. But you know, they're all good. One beard or five beards, or whatever. They're they're all good. So, okay, so that brings me to a question for you. And that is, um, is calling more important than when goose hunting where sometimes you let uh, the decoys do the work? Um, you know, I don't think that... I don't think that... Calling turkeys is any more important than calling geese. I mean, there's there's certainly times when calling is more important um, than than other times. Um, I'm not a great turkey caller. I will be the first person to admit um, I I can barely operate a mouth call at all. I really rely on on my box and my slate calls uh, to get me through. Um, so I try to get birds to a point where they can see the decoys, and I really try to let the, the, the decoys take over. I don't feel like my calling makes a huge difference once the birds get to a certain point, you know, say within that magical range, you know. It just seems like that's somewhere in that 50 to 70, 80-yard mark where if you can get them, to that point and they have a clear line of sight and a clear path to your decoys it's just 99% of the time they come in mm -hmm. you know so. so at that point you are letting the decoys do yeah at that point I'm letting the decoys take over now if I were a better turkey caller I would probably give calling more credit um I've hunted with people like Aaron Brooks who was just on the podcast here this morning um who are phenomenal callers who have certainly in my presence, called in birds that I felt like there's no way we would have killed without their level of skill. Mm -hmm. um, I was with another friend of ours, Doug Crabtree, out in Ohio. I was Ohio. just thinking about that. I was my just... God, that guy was just a he's he is amazing, amazing turkey caller, and um, and he called in a bird on on public ground out there, an eastern, which I I was so. <laughs> I was so focused on I had such tunnel vision on this bird um I think mainly because I was just so amazed that Doug was able to call it off of these live hens from off this ridge top and down to us that um, I didn't see the little tree that it walked behind right as I squeezed the trigger and um needless to say I I didn't get that bird and he he was nice he had a huge huge paintbrush of a beard on oh, him geez. And I'll always wonder about that one, you know. Um, he's the one that got away. Well, but was there gonna... was no way that bird would have come in without Doug's. Well, yeah. What was it? Calling. What was this? What was he doing? He was doing like a hen fight or something like that. Wasn't it something like that? Yeah, yeah. He did a fighting purr. 
He did yeah. a fighting purse sequence. And, and like batting wings or something like that? Or? Yeah, yep. And thrashing the ground. You know, um, there's a lot of dry leaves on the ground and, yeah. and that made a lot of noise. Um, you know, him um, kicking kicking around, thrashing the thrashing the ground. And so that brought the hens to you? No, it didn't bring the hens. It, oh. it drew the gobbler away from the hens. Oh, wow. That's that's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Huh. I, well, I was, I was going to say, you just got through saying that you haven't killed a... Uh, an Eastern on public ground yet. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. It sounds like you just get one, but uh, it sounds like that one got away. So he got away. And that was my one, my one hunt. The one that got away. Yeah. <coughs> yep. Okay. So Dave, I have a question from Shamrock kid one. And that is, do you recommend using a Jake decoy on public land? Uh, boy, I don't know. Let me check with the legal department if I can actually say I recommend that. Um, I don't know for sure if I would say that I, that I recommend you do that. Um, I do it. I definitely, um, definitely have have no no problem doing that myself. Um, I would say that it depends on the situation and it depends on how you know how many people are hunting there and 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 you know and what are the people like. Um, if there is just a ton of people and and they're the type of people that you wouldn't you know completely trust um shoot you know taking pot shots at your at your jake decoy then i then i definitely wouldn't um but that's a rare situation that's a really rare situation it's rare to interact that much with with other hunters i mean at least at least at least for me and in, in, in my experience let's um, say you pull up to a public parking area and there's a fresh case of empty keystone lights there <laughs> uh like yeah keystone light cans and like chew cans all over the place and stuff like that well then i'd be more at ease right away because that me being from idaho i'd be like okay this is my, my <laughs> these are my, my kind of guys my family is here <laughs> um well, yeah, I mean that I I know what you're saying and yeah, that could make a big a big difference like, you know, if there's a bunch of trash dumped all over the place or something like that and you know, you you kind of, you know, see a bunch of hillbillies hunt, hunting like crazy and you know, that could be a little that could be a little a little unnerving and stuff like that. But but if it's a place where you you have to work pretty hard to get to birds and stuff like that, most of the people you're going to run into are going to be pretty safe and all that stuff and um so I'd say no. I don't. I don't. You know. I don't. I can't officially recommend it, but I. I certainly do it myself. I'll leave it at that. So. <coughs> yeah. Um, and for me personally, the only time I had um, a Jake decoy or a gobbler decoy of any kind shot at while I was hunting was actually on private land, and it was by it was by a poacher. So um, you know, I think generally speaking, the kinds of people who are I'm just going to, I'll just say stupid enough to shoot a decoy, um, irresponsible enough to shoot a decoy without knowing for certain what their target is before they squeeze the trigger probably, um, you know, aren't going to, aren't going to let the fact that they don't have permission on a piece of private property stop them. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that it, the fact that you're on public land is necessarily any less dangerous than you being on on private ground you should always be careful you know using a a gobbler decoy um you know always have safety in mind and um and i i certainly enjoy using a jake decoy on public ground i do it all the time i mean literally i can't remember the last time i i hunted on public ground um and and killed a bird without without a jake decoy or, or a shredder decoy, a gobbler decoy in general. Mm -hmm. Okay, next question. And this one, uh, this is from a name I recognize, um, Joe Sima. He is a, he's a good guy. I've never met him in person, but um, I've known him for, for years through through social media. And he actually edited a, some video footage that I took of a, of a bighorn sheep hunt. And he did a great job. He's a good guy. He's our, he's our friend. And Joe writes, I'm curious to know... If you guys have experienced birds leaving the roost in the dark or not roosting, um, the only the only time I've experienced birds leaving the roost in the dark, 
was when we bumped them. Mm-hmm. That's it. And um, that pretty much was the end of the hunt. <laughs> so um, I've seen birds that stayed on the roost really late. Mm-hmm. Like I remember one hunt I had where there was a pair of, of long beards on the roost till like 9, 9.30 in wow. the morning. I couldn't believe it. You know, probably three hours after sunrise. Hmm. And they finally eventually flew down and we killed them. But, um, yeah, I don't know what prompted them to to stay up there. But um, I'm, I'm fairly confident that the, I think two times I can think of birds busting out of the roost in the dark. It was both times because they they could hear us and or see us getting too close to them. Well, we're only at just over an hour and we're nowhere near getting through all these questions. So it looks like this is going to become a two-part series. So uh, let's cut it off there for now. This will be part one of our frequently asked turkey hunting questions and we'll get together uh, maybe in the next week or two and try to address the rest of these questions. So until, uh, until then, signing off. Um, good luck, everyone, this spring. Be safe.